Welcome to the Synapse Nips podcast, where we explore the power of health and healing. On this podcast, we will be talking with health experts, professionals, and leaders about hot topics in the world of health. Whether it's tools to help you flourish, successful stories to inspire, or tips to optimize your health, Synapse Nips is here to help you take the first steps towards living your best life. Welcome to Synapse Snips. This is Dr. Troy with Dr. Josh and Marquis. Welcome, welcome. Today we're going to talk about functional neurology gems and uh, uh, just talk a little bit about how our brain works and communicates and how to recognize when something might not be right. Uh, there's a lot that you can do to actually assess when there's little imbalances. And so we'll walk through some of that. Just looking in the mirror, you can actually point out a whole bunch of different things. So today, functional neurology gems. Let's let's start with uh, just how would you describe, Dr. Josh, uh, functional neurology? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, when I explain that to my patients, I usually contrast it with medical neurology yep. or a medical neurologist. And I say a lot of the the standard testing that a neurologist learns from a physical evaluation perspective is the same types of things that we would use for functional neurology. The difference really practically between the two groups is that medical neurologists are going to have different tools than a functional neurologist in order to fix a given problem. So a medical neurologist is going to look at is something in the brain dead, dying, diseased, something like that, and then they'll use surgery or medications in order to, to help that issue. Functional neurology can be useful in those same situations, but it's more so looking at the balance between different brain areas and how they function relative to each other, because if you have an imbalance in the brain, even if it's not dead, dying, diseased, broken, anything like that, it can still cause symptoms. And the tools that a functional neurologist are going to use are going to be more of a, it's almost like, it's like rehab. It's almost like PT for your brain where you're train, retraining a brain area to function properly. Yeah. There was a formula that I learned when we were going through uh, functional neurology that uh, I find very helpful just to, to basically summarize 12 years of studying in about 60 seconds. But uh, the formula is S equals A plus F. S stands for survivability of the nerves. So for your nerves to survive, for your brain to survive, it needs two things. It needs at activation, A, and F is fuel supply. So let's just go through activation a little bit. And the, the really the best way to say it is activation is anything that stimulates one of our sensory receptors. So taste, touch, smell. Uh, we have sensory receptors in our muscles called muscle spindles. So movement, uh, even our thoughts can be an activation. So anything that activates a nerve through one of our sensory experiences uh, can then stimulate a nerve. It produces action potentials, and then that's what actually keeps the nerves uh, alive. So a uh, nerve is like a muscle a lot, in a lot of ways that if you don't use it, it can atrophy. Mm -hmm. And so F is fuel supply. And the first thing I know we need is oxygen. Oxygen is our primary fuel source. Without oxygen, we really only can live a couple minutes. The second thing, though, well, this might surprise a lot of people, is glucose. We actually need the active uh, um, reduced form of sugar to feed our brain. That's what we use to produce energy in our nerves. And then a lot of byproducts and cofactors uh, go in helping with that process of converting oxygen and glucose into energy. So we have to make sure for nerves and brain to do well, that they're being activated, stimulated, uh, and that there's fuel supply. And the fuel supply, you can really identify pretty quickly because you just there's no gas in the tank, literally. So you might be going and then all of a sudden just boom. Um, you don't have that part of your nervous system working. And so proper uh, oxygen levels, so things like anemia, you don't get enough oxygen levels, things like lung issues where you're not exchanging oxygen for carbon dioxide uh, and things like blood sugar dysregulation, like diabetes, uh, high blood sugar, low blood sugar, those can cause imbalances quite a bit with our brain. So just focusing on the basics as far as anemia and, uh, and good balanced sugar can really go a long way. Then it's all about uh, balancing or stimulating the brain. 
after that, then we get into the balancing. So maybe talk a little bit about how there can be a difference between the left and the right side of our brain or uh, our bodies because yeah. of that. Uh, before that, I wanted to add a third item because Ooh, yes. what I what I like to tell people too is that inflammation and external or internal insults to the brain is another big factor in healing yeah. a brain. When I have somebody come in with a brain-specific problem, I'll often start them off right away with brain exercises, which we can talk about that kind of with your other question. But I always tell them this alone might not be sufficient because not only do we need the fuel part to work, but if you have inflammation in your gut or if you have an infection or if you've got some other thing that's insulting or compromising your brain, then you probably won't get over the hump even if the fuel delivery part right. is working. And then as far as your question to the, the right and left side part, the I think the the easy way to look at it is most people have heard that if you're going to you know move your right side of your body, it's the left side of your brain that's doing that action, right? And that's that's true for the top part of your brain. You get the top big part of your brain, the left side, it's controlling the movement on the right side of the body. It gets a little bit tricky because the coordination of that isn't quite as dependent on the side. You can get some things on the opposite side that help out. But it's pretty easy for us to determine quickly within just a few minutes if a person has what you would call a hemisphericity, where one hemisphere, one half of the brain, is under-functioning relative to the other side. That imbalance is driven sometimes just by a person's dominant hand. Like if they they are right-handed, often the left hand is weaker, so they don't use it as much. And so the the brain, the right brain that corresponds to the left hand might not be as, as strong. Sometimes it's due to an injury. Like if you, for instance, I, I hurt my knee in college, and so that knee doesn't get quite the same amount of, give this quite the same amount of feedback up to my brain than the knee on the other side. And that can have impacts over time, too, yeah. on the balance of the function of the brain. When we find these through testing, this testing is, again, non-invasive stuff. So I have people do coordination testing, balance testing, march testing, uh, even eye movements, and they all assess different areas of the brain. But it's through the lens of if there's um, breakdown or dysfunction in that movement, again, that doesn't mean that that area of the brain is, is dead. It just means that there, it, it is lacking either the fuel or the activation relative to the other side. Yeah, one of the things you can do at home uh, to just kind of assess and see uh, how you're balanced you are, uh, one of the tests you can do or next time you're at the doctor's office is just get your blood pressure checked on both arms. And if there is a difference, of, you know, especially more than 10 points uh, on one arm compared to the other, that may be a sign of one of those hemispheres or imbalances. And I like to have people uh, do that because uh, um, a lot of times the people taking the blood pressure won't know why that is. You'll say, why is that? And we're telling you why it is right now. Generally speaking, there is a difference in what we call the frequency of firing of the nerves to the blood vessels. And blood vessels are just like a, a garden hose. And they're, if you squeeze the end, the pressure of the water is going to go up in the garden hose. If your blood vessels are squeezed a little more from the nerves, causing contraction basically, then the blood pressure will go up more on one side than the other. And I have the standard joke every time. I, I, uh, I have to always rule out other factors like you have two hearts, right? You only have one heart. And uh, people usually laugh like, you did. Was that good? Really? That was the oh, joke. Yes. Wow. You guys didn't get no? <laughs> nothing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's what I get too. <laughs> nothing. And so <laughs> most people don't have two hearts. And so uh, we can assume that there's something driving the, uh, the blood pressure response, the neurologic response on one side more than the other side. There's going to be a couple of people thinking that they might have two hearts and that's yes. that doesn't happen. <laughs> no, it really <laughs> doesn't. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right, so another thing that can upset balance of the brain is the brain chemicals yes. and the neurotransmitters that are used for communication. So your each little brain cell have, have these arms that go out and connect to other neurons and other brain cells so that they can communicate. And it's that communication through different parts of the brain that cause function and control the motion. And you know, pretty much anything that your body does is initiated by a neuron doing something. And so those neurons, though, in order to communicate, it's not quite like the wire uh, between the light switch and the the light where you just flip the switch and the electricity turns it on. You actually have little chemicals floating in fluid that have to go between a very small gap called a synapse 
Hence the name of our clinic. That, this is why we named the clinic Synapse, everyone. <laughs> yeah. Because when I was first starting uh, Synapse, I want I knew how important communication was. We had to have things communicating properly from the brain to the body. And the Synapse was the junction where communication occurs. So here at Synapse, we're restoring proper communication. So um, I went with Synapse. That's why. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I thought it was good because it represents the nerves and... And communication at the same time. So there's levels. <laughs> it's very deep. It's very deep, yes. Synapse. Yeah. So synapses then in your brain, they different ones will use different types of chemicals, and all those chemicals will do different things. And there's some common ones. We don't have to be exhaustive necessarily, but I think the big ones that I always think of are serotonin yes. and dopamine. Yes. And then we have a combo of, of glutamate yeah. and GABA. Yes. And acetylcholine. Maybe those are kind of the top five. You could throw histamine in there too. Yeah, histamine is also a neurotransmitter. Yeah. And I, I believe we're going to be doing a, a part two uh, podcast after this one uh, for you guys to kind of uh, stay in touch on that one. Because we'll be talking about seasonal allergies, which histamine is a part of. But we're also going to be talking about histamine as uh, a neurotransmitter a little mm-hmm. bit in this podcast and, and the next one. So let's just briefly, I guess, give a quick description or what do you think of when you think of dopamine? Let's start with that one. Oh, um, so for me, for dopamine, I think of uh, pleasure centers. I think of the amygdala and I think of how dopamine helps us to, uh, number one, um, sense joy and pleasure. And so if we're doing something exciting, it, a little drip of dopamine will, will be released and then we can actually feel uh, the pleasure of whatever it is that we're doing. Um, it also helps us a lot with uh, our, our muscles and movement. And so we know when uh, people have a lack of dopamine, the, the disease that we tend to see most commonly is uh, Parkinson's. In the substantia nigra, you don't uh, get enough dopamine being produced. And then you start to see the stiffness of Parkinson's. You start to see tremors. So so that's uh, a lot of what dopamine helps to uh, regulate. And today we're seeing a lot of challenges and problems with dopamine from things like video games. Because kids will be playing video games and getting a, a release of dopamine constantly over and over and over and over again. And then uh, you have a potential of burning that system out of fuel or um, simply becoming desensitized. So then regular life doesn't actually feel as pleasurable not as joyful and that can become a problem and we start seeing depression and other issues uh with especially with kids with uh video games uh, because of the dopamine imbalances yeah it's just like any addiction any addiction really is an imbalance of that pleasure center it's an inappropriate firing or lack of control of, of dopamine what i like to think of for dopamine is um it's kind of like well, it's like if you have a if you have a song stuck in your head right and that's kind of a small thing, but if it goes playing over and over and over again, you can't get it out of your head. A lot of that is dopamine related because dopamine also is involved in your ability to switch thoughts or switch tasks. And this happens a lot. I always like to ask the people that I work with, especially if they can't sleep or if they have anxiety, I'll say, is it kind of like your brain's on a little hamster wheel and it can't get off the hamster wheel? And a lot of people say yes to that. It's they can't get those thoughts, and they don't have to be songs. They can be thoughts about anything that their brain just goes over and over and over again, those thoughts, and they can't get off of it. And, and control of dopamine is a big reason for why that happens, or poor control of dopamine. Yeah, so uh, I've got a little list here of different things that can also impact uh, the release of uh, dopamine. So when you have dysglycemia, that impacts the actual release of the dopamine in the the synapse in the in the cleft area. Lack of oxygen, which based on our formula that we just talked about, B six insufficiency can also cause a release a decrease in the release of dopamine. Iron insufficiency or anemia can cause a, a decrease in the release of dopamine. So if you're not really feeling joy or pleasure, then think about uh, any one of these things I just uh, spoke about that can that can do it. Folic acid can also cause impairment. Methylation issues, which we've done a podcast on that, can cause impairment and liver disease. So all of those things impact the actual ability to release dopamine in the uh, synaptic cleft. All right. So let's move on to the next one. Uh, Let's talk serotonin next. So my, my initial thoughts on serotonin are 
are really several, but the big thing people will think of are de- really depression. Yeah. All depression medication or most depression medications that people have heard of are SSRI medications, which stands for selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Basically what that means is that when your brain cells send out serotonin, the medication is trying to keep that serotonin in the synapse longer for better communication. So a lack of serotonin can lead to depression or depressed mood or uh, sometimes anxiety as well, but changes in really affect or how a person feels. And I think it's important too because out an offshoot of your serotonin is the creation of melatonin, yeah. which is critical for sleep. So for people who don't make serotonin very effectively, they can't make melatonin well. It's just, you know, they're basically two steps away from each other when the brain makes those things. Um, serotonin then is also very B6 dependent. You had yeah. mentioned that uh, for dopamine, the B6 is really important for brain function all the way around. Yeah, a lot of neurotransmitters. Yeah, you can't make a lot of these without the vitamins, especially B6. Yeah. One thing that we see with B6 deficiency as it pertains to serotonin is when you can't make the serotonin, you end up making toxic substances that can be very harmful for, for the brain, one of which is called quinolinic acid, yeah. which is kind of fun to say. It's not fun to have in your brain, though. No, no, it's, it's, it's quite damaging, yeah, actually. It's basically like having a fire going on in your brain. Yeah. And, but we see that, though, very often with B6 deficiency, which is more common than you would mm-hmm. expect, where you don't have the serotonin, and the brain is in a very inflamed state because of all that extra stuff that should go to serotonin is going to quinolinic acid. Yeah, there's three things that trigger the pathway uh, other than B6 deficiency from, five, five, from tryptophan, which is the precursor for serotonin, to the quinolinic acid, and that's stress, inflammation, and infection can all drive that. Well, the fourth thing, though, is estrogen imbalance, too. And estrogen imbalance, yeah. A lot, a lot because of the inflammation that is. Yes, actually true. is uh, brought about and just like dopamine um, for serotonin uh, in the actual synapse dysglycemia iron deficiency or anemia b6 insufficiency and here's one that's that's a little more unique to serotonin than dopamine magnesium insufficiency can cause uh, a problem with using uh, serotonin and uh, interestingly enough a lot of serotonin is actually uh, made in the GI tract. The GI tract has a lot of influence over serotonin production. It's not just in the brain. And then methylation insufficiency, specifically B12 and folic acid again. So those all can uh, help with the synthesis and release when they're nice and and balanced. It's amazing how these brain chemicals, even though they're so different in their function, depend on the same things to work. Yes. And so much of it is B vitamin and normal nutrients, magnesium, iron, things that are very commonly deficient in a lot of people. So let's go to the next one now. Um, acetylcholine, I think that's uh, yeah. that should be our next thing here. Acetylcholine. That's, one of my, that's actually one of my new favorites. Is it really? Yeah. Why? Well, because it helps regulate the autonomic nervous system. Oh, yeah, sure. yeah. yeah. So and it does, and it actually, this is a very multifunctional thing. We've talked yeah. about some very specific things with dopamine. Acetylcholine, one job that's not even hardly brain-related is just muscle activation. So yes. all the nerves that activate your muscle use this neurotransmitter acetylcholine and acetylcholine beyond muscle can like dr troy just said the autonomic nervous system which um we can say is split into two parts everybody most people have heard of the fight and flight system that's part of your autonomic system and the rest and digest part of that system or the opposite this is sympathetic and parasympathetic parts of the autonomic nervous system these are unconscious control centers of your brain that you don't have to think about you don't have to think about your heart beating you don't have to think about your digestion happening or your lungs being able to uptake oxygen and all of that is controlled by these systems and therefore by acetylcholine. Yeah, and one of the things uh, I like, uh, and, and I think you guys will get this, when we go through the fight-or-flight response of acetylcholine, acetylcholine basically is pretty easy as far as what makes it. It's, it's a, an acetyl group and choline. So that's why we get acetylcholine. And choline comes from fats mostly. There's a lot of choline in eggs and, and other things uh, like that. But... Uh, if you are doing a low-fat diet, which was all of the fat in the 1980s and early 90s, uh, it can really disrupt your ability to get enough choline. Uh, and you need that uh, as for part of the raw ingredients. And then to actually make the acetyl part, that comes that's a byproduct of using sugar metabolism in your brain. So if you're not actively using sugar properly in the brain, you're not getting the acetyl group to then make the acetylcholine. So lack of blood sugar regulation can lead to fight or flight responses. 
But what's even better is that the receptors that uh, acetylcholine binds to in women, estrogen uh, makes those receptors more sensitive and actually um, helps them uh, express. And in men, it's testosterone. So if you don't have enough testosterone, men, and you don't have enough estrogen or the right type of estrogen, women, then you're not getting the receptors for the acetylcholine to bind to. And so you can end up getting fight or flight responses. And people are usually shocked when we say, I, I have them guess, when it comes to the brain, is the brain neurotransmitters and the brain itself mostly inhibitory or excitatory? And the answer is the brain is mostly inhibitory. So we have a lot of inhibition of inhibition in the brain with a net result of excitation type of scenarios. But uh, the way to kind of say that is if, if someone has a stroke, their arm usually starts to get tighter and flex. So you, you see this posturing occur. And so the nerves are sending signals to contract the muscles because they've lost some level of inhibition. Uh, also, you'll also notice that as people get older, they lose their filter. <laughs> so there's a, there's definitely a decrease inhibition there and they start speaking their mind a little more freely. Yeah. So uh, we see that quite often. Um, and uh, that's part of, of the, the mechanism of the, the challenge of the neurotransmitters being made and actually used properly. But the hormones are a big, big part of the acetylcholine as far as the fight or flight scenario. Yeah. Another big thing that I know you're a big fan of right now for the production of acetylcholine is B1. Yes. And we don't need to go into B1 too much because I think that deserves its own conversation topic and podcast. Yeah. But it is an underappreciated B vitamin that can be deficient in a lot of situations, especially situations of chronic stress and inflammation. What happens in that situation, you don't have activation of certain energy-producing enzymes that require that B vitamin, so you don't make energy properly. Yeah. And one of the big things that we see coming off of that is a decreased function or output of the vagus nerve, yes. which is part of the parasympathetic or rest and digest system, and which controls swallowing, uh, heart and lung function, and digestive function. Yes. So people, some people with digestive function that stems from a brain insufficiency or an insufficiency of that B vitamin or acetylcholine. And that's why, as we're talking about these neurotransmitters, I want you guys to really get that uh, the reason why it's important is because if we catch stuff soon enough, you can actually make differences. Because if you have these little imbalances affecting the vagus nerve, and all of a sudden you're not digesting food properly, or you start getting a racing heart, you don't have to necessarily go in for like, heart um, cardioversions or anything like that. You don't have to go get uh, the, these invasive things done. We can start working on the basics first and get the foundational stuff better. And a lot of times these things will improve. We've had multiple people with arrhythmias and uh, other challenges improve by uh, working on their diet and getting the brainstem, the vagus nerve in particular, firing more adequately to the end organs, which can be anything from the the digestive system, pancreas, lungs, heart, um, anything down there. Yeah. I had a conversation with a, with a patient of ours. I think it was even this week where we discussed anxiety's role and stress's role on this whole system. And I know we've talked stress in other podcasts, but I think it's worth tying it back because now we're talking about it from the opposite side. But stress, when you have stress of any form, especially mental, emotional stress, one of the outcomes of that is the vagus nerve decreasing its function. Yeah. Because when the fight and flight system is ramped up from stress, the rest and digest is going to be down-regulated and the vagus nerve won't work. That person I was talking to had digestive issues, had some heart palpitation things, and had difficulty swallowing, yeah. which are all things that the vagus nerve will do. Yes. And so I always ask about swallowing because people will – it surprises me how many people have difficulty in swallowing. Yeah. And so that's you. That could be a vagus nerve issue. Well, here's one way you can actually um, tell. And we're going to go through a few things just for you to be able to you literally look in the mirror and look at to see if there might be some imbalances. But uh, if you can swallow multiple supplements at the same time, that's a good sign you're doing okay. If you have to do one at a time, that might be a sign uh, of some dysfunction. There are a lot of other things that can set that off too, but that's one of the things to just get a sense of uh, trouble swallowing. We hear that all the time where people can't do pills because they say uh, just, yeah. the, just the pressure or the thought of the pill, their airway starts to close up. Well, that's a 
fight or flight response or a stress response to the thought of ingesting a pill. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to our, we're going to group the next two together. We're going to talk about glutamate and GABA. The reason why we group these two is that glutamate is the main brain chemical that is excitatory. So it's the thing that turns on most of the brain if it's going to activate different neurons. And GABA is the complete opposite. It's the primary inhibitory neurotransmitter where it will shut down and decrease activity. It's literally the anti-worrying brain chemical. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So when people take, um, uh, what is it, like lorazepam, what are those benzodiazepine yeah. medications, those are often GABA-related. Yeah. They're trying to mimic GABA in the brain to try to yes. calm things down. But I find it very interesting that when your brain makes these chemicals, first it will make glutamate, and then glutamate is made directly into GABA. So these are made basically as the almost the exact same molecule with yeah. polar opposite Completely effects. opposite results, yeah. yeah. And the things that you need in order to make sure you make enough GABA, B6 is another one of those big things. We yeah. talked about B6 now with, with almost every uh, neurotransmitter we've yeah. discussed. Yeah, and uh, uh, for some people, uh, a lot of people, if you crave alcohol to feel better, that's a good sign that you're GABA deficient. Now, it could be a sign of stress as well, but ga- alcohol mimics uh, GABA. Um, it doesn't do a very good job because it does in the beginning, but it ends up contributing to the depletion of your B vitamins. So it ends up uh, being a, a poison just like uh, other things that uh, are good in the beginning. Uh, a lot of things that uh, uh, medication-wise can be good in the beginning and then end up having side effects. Alcohol is no different. This whole system is one reason why magnesium can be so important for brain health. Yeah. Glutamate, if there's too much of it, can cause something called excitotoxicity, yeah. where there's so much excitation of neurons that it burns out the system. And yeah. in some extreme situations, that can lead to seizures or other types of brain uh, electrical abnormalities. Have you ever seen that with people who consume too much glutamate, like an MSG, monosodium glutamate? That could, well, yeah, I mean, that's exactly that's a, um, like headaches, for instance, right? My, uh, I have a family member who, when they have MSG, they'll get terrible headaches or terrible migraines. Yeah. Actually, now that I think about it, I know several people that way. Yeah. And that's because there's too much excitation in a certain part of the brain. Now, magnesium, I mentioned magnesium. Magnesium blocks, actually blocks the channel that glutamate is activating. So if you have so much glutamate that it's too excitatory, magnesium is one of the, it's not going to necessarily lower your glutamate, but it will help stem the negative effects of that. Yeah, it'll calm things down. And uh, only iodine is more deficient worldwide. So magnesium is the number two deficiency in the world. It's involved in over 400 different enzyme processes in the body. So it's used across the whole body. So it's very easy to become deficient in magnesium. A great source of magnesium is chlorophyll. And chlorophyll is the green thing in plants, right? Yes. And so we as a society don't like to eat a lot of those green things very often, but that is a primary source of magnesium. Yeah, and if you're anemic too and your hemoglobin is low, chlorophyll can actually aid. It's not as good as hemoglobin at delivering oxygen or anything like that, but it can actually aid in that process of, uh, of uh, uh, reoxygenating certain systems. Yeah. All right, so let's go to the last neurotransmitter we discussed, and that was histamine. We'll do just a brief thing on histamine here just to round it out, yes. uh, but we'll do another podcast very soon on histamine. Histamine in the brain is something that I think of as a as a, an awakening type of hormone or a neurotransmitter, but it also, in, if it's in excess, will contribute to anxiety. Yeah, it, it'll, in excess, it keeps your brain awake. It stimulates the arousal part of the brain. And so it'll keep you awake. So people have a hard time going to sleep. That could be part of it. Um, if you stay up late, it takes you a while to actually get to sleep. That could be a part of it. Um, we'll talk about this more on the next podcast with seasonal allergies. But some people during seasonal allergy uh, season end up having uh, really a lot of trouble sleeping because they're producing extra histamine um, as well. And we're going to go through some unique causes for that on the next podcast. But yeah, it keeps us uh, awake, and it's great in the morning when you're trying to wake up and be wide awake, but it's not good when you're trying to sleep uh, throughout the night. Yeah. Every once in a while, I have a person I'm working with where their primary issue is anxiety, and different types of anxiety will respond to different things. But for some people, 
even natural antihistamine substances like quercetin, nettle, there's other things relating to that can be just a total night and day difference on anxiety if you use those substances. It's not always the case. No, I wish it was though. I know, but maybe for 10-20% of people, histamine is, is the game changer for anxiety. Yeah, I, I uh, uh, know more about histamine. I wish I knew about histamine in my first start practice because uh, uh, that came more later in my career as far as understanding it a little bit more. And so mm -hmm. um, I'd like to go through some of the clinical pearls that uh, we've uh, seen um, after we talk about the functional neurology as far as just looking at different things uh, in, like in the mirror. I just tell people... Oh, sure. yeah. Like, uh, for example, when we're looking at the body, we're looking for differences from side to side. So like the blood pressure in the left and right arm, if there's a difference, there might be a neurologic component to it. Mm -hmm. Same thing when you write, raise your eyebrows up. So when you're looking in the mirror and you raise your eyebrows, does one go higher than the other? When you're trying to raise them to the same height, that's a sign of one muscle is functioning a little better than the other one. Does one of your eyelids droop more than the other one? Uh, when someone can't open up, their eye quite as wide, that's uh, a potential sign. The pupil, uh, pupil sizes can be different from the left to right, and that is a sign too that the nerves are not firing uh, quite uh, balanced, and there's always causes for that. And that's one of the things that people, once they identify a larger pupil, um, it kind of freaks them out. It's hard to unsee it. And then, yeah, so if you're, if you're dating and you happen to be hearing this podcast and then your, your date has one large pupil and one small pupil, right away. yes, there's something going on there neurologically. <laughs> if they're a smoker, that's not a good thing because there's a, there's a particular type of apical lung tumor that causes that, uh, that too, but we're not going to go there. That's, so that's very rare. It causes compared. sweating change too. It does cause sweating change. So, um, but those imbalances are, are there. And then when people smile, if the smile is unbalanced and goes to one side versus the other, we start to see uh, imbalances within the nervous system that can cause that. Anything else that you um, like to look at as far as symmetry? Yeah. Uh, this is something more that you can feel and see, but jaw tension. Yep. So if you've got jaw tension on one side, that's coming from another very specific brain nerve. A lot of these things that we're talking about are actually considered cranial nerves. They're yes. nerves that come out of the brain stem instead of the spinal cord like most of your muscle control does. But these cranial nerves control jaw and jaw tension. Um, one other thing is dizziness. Yeah, uh, that's an easy thing to feel, not see. Um, you mentioned um, smiling. I sometimes have people stick their tongue out and see if it's crooked. Yeah, if it goes off to the side, if it deviates. So that's yep. another one that. If, if your tongue goes off to the side and deviates, you either have a neurologic disorder or you're a politician. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Anything else? Uh, let's see. Walking. Uh, this is e less easy to tell on yourself, but for, you know, don't go around telling everybody that you know that they've got a brain problem if they walk funny. Yeah. But really, arm swing. The arm swing yeah. is a big one for me. I yeah. I can't go to the mall without looking at people's arm swing, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, you'll see people where their left arm is swinging back and forth, and the right arm is just kind of hanging there. And especially if they're older, that is not a good sign. No. And I remember years ago watching a uh, an interview with uh, Michael J. Fox, and he was talking, and we were going through our functional neurology training program, and the guy I was sitting with, uh, about halfway through the interview, we both looked at each other, and we said, he's got Parkinson's. And it was another year, year and a half before he came out and said that he's got Parkinson's. But we could tell based off of his uh, his eyes, his facial twitching, and we were studying it at the time, and so we were able to see that a full year and a half before he even even came out. But there's so much you can see with that. But the 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 gait or the walking is, is a big is a really big part of it. Toe turnout and whether their heel to toe striking is is right. Um, and then even how high they will actually bring their arms up one side compared to the other. Yeah, there's a lot once you get into it. Certainly. Yeah. And that's really what functional neurology is for us: is looking at these things when we're sitting across from. A, a patient yeah and sometimes we do provoked testing like eye movements or we'll have people do the coordination testing it's always funny when i have a family in yeah i'm doing testing on one person and you can see the family member is all trying, trying to do, to do the, the same, same coordination thing. testing and undoubtedly there's somebody else in the room who doesn't do it very well <laughs> yeah we do this marching test called the fakuda's uh, uh marching test and uh someone when they bring a family member in they're always like do the marching test do the marching test because they want to see where they end up 
yeah. in the room or if it's normal. Yeah. What it should be, and don't do this at home, please. But when you when you march with your eyes closed, you should be able to stay in one spot. Yes. And we have a lot of people who will turn mm-hmm. almost an entire 360 yeah. and not know it. Actually, the synapse record was a gentleman who came in with vertigo. He didn't march forward or backwards. He just turned on the same spot. And he went 360 degrees and then another 180 degrees in 60 seconds. And he didn't, he didn't feel it. Either. He didn't feel it. He did not know he was rotating. And we filmed him three times, uh, recorded him uh, three times to... To, to show him how much he was turning. I still use that in my lectures today. Yeah. He was so he was so upset he thought he wasn't he moving. He thought he nailed it. And he yeah. thought he nailed it every time. And he thought he could just think his way through it. But you can't. It's reflexive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so I'm going to go through a list of gems here to finish up. And then anything that kind of uh, uh, sticks out, just uh, make a comment on. And these gems come from one of our favorite researchers, uh, Dr. Walsh uh, from the Walsh Research Institute. And he just wrote up some lessons from his clinical experience of 20 plus years of, of testing brain chemistry and, and working with brain chemistry. Yeah. Before you start, uh, yeah. Walsh has a very good book called Nutrient Power, which yes. is a really good, I think, fairly accessible, accessible way of, of learning about some of these brain chemicals and how they impact things like depression, anxiety, bipolar, even schizophrenia he talks about in there. Yep, and he's he really knows his stuff as far as the interactions as well. So I'm going to read off some of the gems. This is like the cliff notes of the of his yeah, book, basically. So this is one. We talked about how important B6 is, but if you take B6 in the evening, just be aware it can cause insomnia with some people. Zinc in the morning can cause nausea or stomach pain, and we find that if you, if you take zinc on an empty stomach, it can still cause that so taking it with food can be helpful uh, a balanced combination of the regular type of b6 along with the active form the methylate form the p5p is better than either alone that was one that was just that was something that uh, you don't, you don't know find about. that in supplements very often. no you don't um he says avoid histidine supplements to elevate blood histamine levels manganese is very useful for low histamine patients but must be limited for persons with high histamine and avoided for persons with Parkinson's symptoms or heart disease. So manganese is a very important cofactor. And the whole histidine thing will tie into kind of our next podcast too, but histidine is a normal thing in protein. And any type of protein, meat or protein powder or anything like that, will have some histidine in it. But this is why leftover food or food that's, especially if it's spoiled, but it's been in your fridge for a long time and you still eat it, a lot of that histidine converts into histamine, and that's why it can bother some people. Yeah. Uh, betaine has limited effectiveness in treating low stomach acid. So I want this is a caveat to this because we use betaine hydrochloric acid with people with hypochloridia. And so what he's talking about there is by taking betaine, you're not going to increase your natural production of stomach acid. It's just helping to replace um, that uh, it's a temporary fix. it's a temporary fix. You still have to get the vagus nerve stimulating the parietal cells of the stomach better, and then you still have to have zinc and and histamine actually yeah, in balance is. to make the stomach acid. There's that histamine again. Uh, under methylated patients usually be- benefit from Benadryl. Oh, that's a big one. Yeah, and. <laughs> Just a quick little comment on that, the whole methylation thing. People who undermethylate mean that they don't have usually the proper levels of folate B and B12 in particular in order to send that cycle through its full process. Methylation does a lot of things. Control of histamine is one of them. And so people who respond well to Benadryl, they probably both have um, a histamine issue but then they have that histamine issue because they don't have those B vitamins, and that's the whole undermethylation thing. Now, this one is uh, really intriguing. So especially for people with mental health issues that have been treating and trying to do things right, taking supplements, I want you to hear this one. Most mental health patients with low serotonin or dopamine activity deteriorate if given folic acid supplements. Autism is an exception to this rule. However, folates and B12 are the gold standard treatment for undermethylation and are recommended for patients without a significant low serotonin or low dopamine issue. So when I have someone who is, um, I'm treating for low methylators that don't seem to tolerate B vitamins, mm-hmm. it, it, you can almost take to the bank, they've got serotonin and dopamine issues that have to be worked on first. Yes. 
And often that means giving the other precursors so that exactly. they can make that properly. And then eventually they're able to tolerate the, the proper folate and B12. Methionine and SAMe are the most decisive nutrients for undermethylated, low serotonin active activity patients. Some depressed or psychosis adults require 3,000 milligrams per day of methionine or 600 milligrams per day of SAMe. This is the methylation thing again. So (laughs) really what we should do, we should do a video podcast of this one because this is a good thing to draw on the board. Dr. Josh just likes to draw this methylation chart over. How how many times have you... I think if you went and looked at my whiteboard, you would see all the times I erased it. Yes, yeah. it's literally yeah. permanently on there from yeah. all the times yeah. you erased it. But I think the one thing that I want to say is we, we just mentioned the B vitamins. When you have the B vitamins present in the methylation cycle, that's when you'll actually produce what you just said, the methionine and the SAMe correctly. Yeah. Methionine is just a protein again. This is a protein that's very commonly found in meat. Yeah. And so if a person is eating sufficient protein, they often but not always have enough methionine then it's dependent on the B vitamins to recirculate that so you get enough of these other nutrients. Well, keep in mind, too, though, if you have low stomach acid and you're not breaking your proteins down, you become deficient in the amino acids and things like methionine. Folic acid is the most decisive nutrient for patients challenged by excessive activity at dopamine and or norepinephrine receptors. Overmethylated schizophrenia patients may require 4,800 micrograms per day. So we just talked about undermethylation, which is the requirement for those B yes. vitamins. And overmethylation is when you have that process and hide, you know, revving that engine too much. What you really are trying to do in that situation is either block that excitation, really, yeah. or give your body nutrients that will deplete the excess methyl groups, really. Because methyl groups are nothing more than, I like to think of this as a relay race. Yeah. It's you've got the baton, which is a methyl group, and methyl is carbon. And carbon is what makes up a lot of living things. But when you stick that piece of carbon onto different molecules, really what you're doing is you're making it mix better in water. Yeah. And so you do that with DNA, you do that with toxins, you do that with other types of you know neurotransmitters to get them to activate. And in a situation of overmethylation, you have too many batons. Basically, what you have, you have too many yes. batons, and you need to get the cart and put the batons back, and there's certain nutrients that will help with that. And that and overmethylation is very, very common with uh, uh, schizophrenia and even the induction of schizophrenia. Uh, normal dream recall uh, indicates B6 to P5P sufficiency. Symptoms of excessive B6 P5P are A, skin neuropathy, and B, troubling dreams. So that's interesting. Well, it's, it is because it's kind of a it's a balancing act with B6 because if you don't have enough of it, you don't sleep well and you don't dream. And if yes. you have too much of it, you don't sleep well and your dreams are weird. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you'll get tingly hands and feet if you take too much. Yeah. It's usually pretty common. The times that I see people come in with this, we go through their supplements and we say, wow, you, you're on six, eight different things that have a bunch of B6 in it. And they don't usually know that. Yeah. And even taking down the amount of supplements they're taking bigger, you know, cures that problem. Yes. Uh, this next gem is probably not too uh, needed for people, but just for that one person out there that might be listening to this, uh, molybdenum supplements can stunt growth in young children. <laughs> molybdenum, yeah, that, yeah. It doesn't come up very often, but it's no. important. It's sulfur metabolism, too. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, and then, yeah, there's a whole other show we can do on sulfur and, uh, <laughs> and uh, autism and hair growth and all kinds of things. Uh, erroneous lab results for histamine almost always involve false high readings. This means actually quite hard to actually uh, measure. Omega-3 supplements can harm persons with severe pyroli disorder. So again, um, if, if you try omega-3, which is fairly benign for the most part, and they have a negative reaction to it, then that can cause the cryptopyroli uh, scenario, which is a combination of zinc and B6 deficiency. And I'm going to read that, that uh, personality here in a little bit. Yeah, that whole disorder is very... Uh, underappreciated, yes. but it's a, often a very easy thing to fix. And it's a urine test. We do a yeah. urine test for, I'm going to call it cryptopyrrole because I, yeah. I, I just, you know, we, we tomato, tomato, model, tomato, yeah. Exactly. Um, but just if you hear us say it differently, it's just in it's our brains differently. Yeah. Um, but th- that urine test, I always think it's funny, this is a slight tangent, but you have to do that one in as little light as possible. 
yeah. preferably in the dark, which makes the urine testing hard. Yeah. Because if you get any light in that sample, it'll degrade it fast enough where you'll never get a, a normal reading. From yes. that one. Yeah. Um, and then this one is also interesting. Most high copper females are intolerant to estrogen therapy. To a lesser extent, they may be harmed by progesterone. So uh, what that means, basically, if you have copper toxicity or copper excess, you don't tolerate the estrogens and progesterones all that well. So if you get headaches um, from hormone replacement therapy or other problems, it might be copper toxicity. And we're going to talk a little bit about what that personality looks like here in, in a little bit. But uh, it's basically, it induces the fight or flight personality. Yeah. One of the other big things with um, the birth control or, or hormone replacement piece is B6 again. And you'll deplete B6 if you take estrogens. And this is another reason why women sometimes don't tolerate taking hormones. This last gem is something that uh, I, I love that uh, Dr. Walsh uh, even has this as a notation. But he has high histamine patients tend to be very non-compliant. Low histamine and or high copper patients generally are very compliant. So that was just an interesting uh, aha he had. And then just to finish up here on this podcast, I'm going to go through the copper overload symptoms and traits per Dr. Walsh. Generally, this is not, you're not going to have every trait on here, but if you are 60 to 80% of, uh, of these personality traits, then you might have copper uh, toxicity or copper overload. Hyperactivity, that's even with kids, ADHD, high anxiety, skin intolerance to cheap metals, academic underachievement, High incidence of learning disability, like ADHD. Skin sensitivity, tags, shirts, blouses, rough fabrics kind of irritate you. Intolerance to estrogen or birth control pills. Onset during puberty, pregnancy, or menopause. White spots on your fingernails, which is really a sign of zinc deficiency. But copper and zinc compete with each other. Emotional meltdowns. Ringing in the ears which we're actually seeing a lot of that right now uh, during the COVID season and uh, vaccine season as one of the side effects from both. Sensitivity to food, dyes, and shellfish, very common in copper overload. Poor immune function, which again is more of a zinc deficiency issue. Sleep problems, poor concentration and poor focus. Low dopamine activity with the copper overload. And then elevated activity of norepinephrine and adrenaline. Those are the, the catecholamines or the... Yeah. The, the stress hormones, that's why the fight or flight. I think it should be restated too. You mentioned zinc. A lot of those can be not from the copper being by itself too high, but it's because, because of an imbalance between the zinc and the copper where the zinc is too low. Yes. And so the only, if zinc is too low, you'll see stuff like poor wound healing and temper control problems with high irritability. So there's just some moderate things there. And with zinc deficiency, they tend to skip breakfast. So that's uh, an interesting one, too. Often because they're nauseous. Yeah, often because they're nauseous, they need zinc in yeah, the morning. Exactly. When I, I think I see people test this a fair amount, and I want to be clear on something, too. When you test for zinc and copper, which you can pretty easily do, you always want to ask for something called ceruloplasmin that goes with it because the majority of your copper is on a protein called ceruloplasmin. If you don't know that... Well, maybe I should say it this way. If you do know all three of those together, you can you can actually calculate the difference between active, usable copper and free toxic copper. Because you might have a normal level of copper, but if you don't know how much of the ceruloplasmin is there, a lot of that available copper might actually be toxic and you wouldn't know it based on a normal copper test. Yes. All right. Last uh last one, the cryptopyroid disorder, uh symptoms and traits, poor stress control. Severe oxidative stress, which you have to measure that in the labs, mm -hmm. with lab work. Um, we also see poor short-term memory. We have, we also see elevated cryptopyroles in the in the urine. Sensitivity to bright lights. So that's one that's really uh, we see quite a bit. High irritability and temper. Sensitivity to loud noises. Affinity for spicy and salty foods. Abnormal fat distribution. Tendency to delay or skip breakfast, history of a reading disorder, extreme mood swings, severe inner tension, history of underachievement, little or no dream recall, pale skin or inability to tan, which actually is like the majority of my family, but <laughs> <laughs> so there are other things that can cause that. Uh, delicate facial features, morning nausea, very dry skin, frequent infections, autoimmune disorders, premature graying of hair, abnormal menstrual periods, 
white spots on the fingernails, poor growth, poor muscle development, fruity breath, coarse eyebrow hair, stretch marks or striae on their skin, spleen area pain, severe anxiety, severe depression, fear, this is a unique one, fear of airplane travel, tornadoes, etc. That's a unique one they found. Histrionic behavior. Um, that's like those really, like, uh, what do you call it? Melodramatic, uh, like just like to play it up. Theatrical. Sure. Um, joint pains. Obsessions with negative thoughts. Delayed puberty. Dark or uh, mauve colored urine. Mauve? Mauve? Like pur- yeah. Purple? Purple. I'm colorblind, but I should be able to read it still. <laughs> <laughs> Psoriasis, an abnormal EEG, and a tendency to stay up very late. So like we said, that's a B6 and zinc deficiency. You can see with that list. Um, it's a big list. It's a big list. Okay. But every time, I usually go through this list, and I just see if the person says, yeah, that's a fit, no. And um, it is shocking how... Uh, how often they're like, yes, that's me to a T. And I'm like, really? Yeah. Yeah. I almost wish more people were that way. Yeah. They came in here. Cause it's, it's when, when that's the main issue, the treatment for it is so simple and can be so life changing. So I wish it was always that easy with yeah. everybody. Yeah. Some of our fastest turnarounds with very, very debilitating complex disorders, um, uh, really respond quite quickly. Yeah. Well, good. That is uh, part A of our podcast, and tune in next week for part B when we talk a little bit more about histamine in particular. And uh, tis the season here in the United States and Canada for allergies, so we're going to talk about how histamine is related to the seasonal allergies and all the things that can go with that. Take care, everyone, and have a good rest of your week. Thank you for listening to the Synapse Nips podcast. If you like what you heard, subscribe to the podcast and share the podcast. To learn more, check out our website at www.officialsynapse.com. Until next time, this has been Synapse Snips Podcast. We'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is for information purposes only and should under no circumstances be considered medical advice or a substitute for medical care. Any information given in this podcast is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease and is at the user's own risk. Please first consult a licensed healthcare professional.